Gang, I want to welcome you to Impact. Um, like I said, not just a church, but a movement of God is what we're hoping it'll be. And it's a launch at this phase. If you're joining us this week and you're brand new, we are a church, but we're a launch team. And our, we're going to officially hope to have our grand opening as Impact Church on Easter. Okay, so we got several months to go, and some of you are going, well, look around, Pastor. Some people showed up. You don't call this a church. You said where two or more are gathered. I do call it a church. Remember, uh, we don't even need a building for that. But my purpose and my hope, and I believe what God's calling us to do right now, is to build up a team, an army of volunteers, because I think this thing's going to be big. I think we're going to make an impact with this church. And so my hope is that when Easter comes, you know, maybe 500 show up, maybe seven, 800, maybe 1,000. Maybe a lot of people will get saved, hopefully, and we're praying for that, come Christmas Eve here, and we'll grow mostly by new conversion. That's the way a church ought to grow. There's a thousand churches in Charlotte. In Char- in Char- in <laughs> wow. I just need another Red Bull, and I should be fine. It'll be dangerous if I have another one. Well, there's a thousand churches in Charlotte and the surrounding area. Actually, we don't need another church, uh, but we could use a movement, couldn't we? We could definitely use a, a movement of God. And so we want to grow up in an army of volunteers. That means everybody who comes and loves the mission, as we unpack it in January, of Impact Church needs to get involved. If you all turn around, look in the back, you'll see our Impact Prayer booth. There's also a Impact Life Group booth and a children's booth. We need everybody who comes to Impact, and you're pointing there, and a sound table booth. You got like 15 volunteers sitting there, Kendall, all right? So we're going to lay off you for a while and say half of you need to go to Children's and volunteer there. We, we don't know what happened, what was in the water, whatever, but we're very blessed with kids. You saw, we've had, uh, you know, this is, our, I think, our eighth or ninth week meeting a, as a launch team, and we've had, you know, 70, 80 kids under 11. So I mean, look around. Something's up. Do you all have like 10 kids apiece? So we're blessed with kids, and we need people to go in there, and, and we don't babysit kids at Impact. We're teaching them the same message on their level, so we need people that'll, that'll commit to really getting involved with our kids, too, and helping change lives there. Uh, a couple more things of business here. Look on your uh, chairs. You'll see that card. That's not just for guests, gang. That's for everybody. Please fill that out every single week. Some of you are like, I'm not going to fill it out, because if I fill it out, you'll know that I was here, and you'll call on me, and you'll make me volunteer. Well, that's true, but there are worse things in life. Hang on one second. So please do, by the way, next week I get my, my headgear there, so I, I, you, know, you can tell that I'm so dysfunctional holding a microphone. Um, so we're getting, and every week it's like Christmas here. I mean, literally this week because we actually have Christmas trees. But also, if you look, it, it's like Christmas because Tom Briscato and his team, Alan Poovey and some others, literally are, are building this stuff. I mean, you see these little, what do you call those things? Trusses? What are they? They're, they're light-up trusses. I notice they don't light up when I preach. What is this? You trying to keep it boring when I preach here? They're all lit up for the music. Well, Tom and his team, they build these things. Those things cost, I mean, you can cost like $800 apiece for those things. He just builds them himself. So for me, it's like Christmas every single In fact, can you guys put your hands together and just thank the volunteers that are doing so much? Guys, ever watch that show? That's enough. That's too much. Thank you. You guys ever watch that show? Uh, as an old child, I don't even know if it's on repeat TV anymore. Remember MacGyver? Was that the name of the show, MacGyver? I'm not talking about Pete MacGyver because he's nothing, nothing like the MacGyver that I'm talking about. MacGyver I'm talking about could take a rubber band and a paper clip or a shoelace and get out of anything or build anything. That's Tom. That's Tom. He can literally build anything that we need uh, from almost nothing. And I'm jealous because I'm somewhat technically challenged. 
And some of you that know me know that that is true. How many of you like to write things down rather than use these, these uh, demonic things called iPhones? Thank you. Thank for, I mean, thank you for the two of you <laughs> that like to still write things down. I mean, I don't trust a phone that doesn't have a cord connected to it. I still th- I'm still way back in the ancient days that things ought to be easy to understand. And I also prefer to, I prefer to hold my Bible, a real written uh, Bible that you can turn the actual pages. How many of you, be honest, are bringing your iPad and your iPhone, and that's your Bible now? Raise your hand. Let me see you. Let me see you evil people. All right. You know why I say that? Because I suspect you're playing games when I'm preaching. I suspect you're, you know, you're on there. You're not, you're not following at all. You're, you're, you're playing games with whatever millions of games are on there. Uh, and I also prefer, when I'm even getting ready for sermons, I like to read through old-fashioned commentaries and, and hold those things in my hands over Googling a word or a term that I don't understand. And I prefer uh, on my computer, when things go bad, I prefer holding down the power button you know, for five or six seconds until it just annihilates the whole thing. And you just start over. How many of you do that? Well, I have been told that I could close tabs. I, and you guys got, I used to be a teacher in, in high school and junior high. I used to teach high school and junior high, and so they gave me feedback. I like that stuff, so I want you to give me feedback. Otherwise, I'll start preaching like an old-time gospel preacher and start spitting on you, and I can make it about five rows back. So give me feedback when I ask for it, and we'll be good. So I, I've been told that you should not hold down the power key at least on the old, how many of you are, are PC users? Wow, I thought, I thought they were a dying breed, but not here. How many of you are Mac users? Oh, please, please. Mac users, I should have heard more boos there. I heard you guys are an emotional, pretty dedicated group there. Well, either, I know this is true on a PC because they're so dysfunctional, but on PCs, you really shouldn't hold down, I understand, the, the power button and reset it like that because I, I heard you can cause damage to your computer if you do that over and over and over again. Like I said, I would open up so many tabs. You guys even know what tabs are? Am I, am I preaching to the choir here? You anyway, and if I want, I'm ADHD, can you tell? So what I do is I'll open a tab and I'll go, that's an interesting article, I'm going to read that, except I've got to check, you know, my Facebook, and then I need to do this. And th- Okay, that is... Cold and uncalled for, and I not that that's that's true though. I think my record gang is 146 tabs open, which is a, an addiction and a disease. I mean, it's there's something wrong. We need. To, I just I intend to read all of them a little bit at a time, and I need that. But what happens? It'll freeze up your computer, and it absolutely won't work after a while. And and then I'll go for the hard reset, and there can be damage to the computer. So I recently been rebuked by a certain IT person who will be named, not at this moment, I'll be nice. I may need to name him later, you know, if he shuts my mic off or something. He's not even looking at me. Mic off. <laughs> Thank you. Well, somehow i got to disconnect this from you, so you can't keep doing that. Uh, but this IT guy told me that repeatedly doing that will cause damage to the hard drive, which sounded at the time like a bad thing. Is it? It's a bad thing to damage your hard drive? So um, I'm hoping I didn't break it, and he said, well, you can. You can actually break your computer. As it turns out, there's another way to do this. There's another way to protect your computer and sort of a win-win thing. What you can do is find out why it's locking up, 
which is change the behavior that's leading to the lockup, and the computer will start working without causing any damage to the hard drive. It's kind of like a win-win, as they say. Not sure who they are, because it sounds like a win-lose, because I want to keep my tabs open. So, Kendall, the mystery IT person, got me this program that's actually called Too Many Tabs, which sounds like an indictment, doesn't that? Doesn't that sound like, like he's, it's actually made for me and saying it's bad to have that open? And so too many tabs means you can push your tabs that are open up to another row, and they're sort of not really open. They're not really live, so it helps your memory. Well, what I was doing was damaging the computer, all because I became impatient and bored. On average, I looked at it after Kendall told me this, and I have on average 85 tabs open every time I use the computer. Well, friends, you're sitting there going, wow, what in the world does this have to do with where we are in this time of year? And this is the Pastor Rob I know. He's off somewhere. Reel him in. Well, gang, maybe it's just me, but I have a, a sneaky suspicion it is not just me. Gang, Christmas? I mean, look up here. Look at me for a minute. I, I know this isn't just me. Christmas needs to be reset. I really believe it needs to be reset. I think we're off. I know we're off. And I don't know that if anybody around the world, if any other culture is more off on Christmas time than we are. It's broken. It needs to be reset. But it needs to be done. It's sort of like the hard drive thing. It needs to be done the right way. If it's reset the wrong way, all we'll do is more damage to Christmas in this time of the year and get more off track than ever before if we do this the wrong way. So here's what happened. It's gotten so locked up with so many unrelated tabs that we all start to open more and more this time of year that many of us are going to come to the end of the season, and we're going to come to December 24th, and we're going to hope, and we're going to long, and we're going to say to ourselves, like I've done in the past, and like I know you've done, Christmas is going to be different this year. I'm going to find the, the reason this year. You're going to get all the way to December 24th, and then that feeling that maybe it won't be any different is going to be about even with the excitement that it's December 24th, especially if you have kids and they're all waiting for Santa Claus, and, and, and they're about even. And you know in your heart, parents especially, you know, I, I blew it again. This is going to come and go, and somehow it's not going to bring the joy and the contentment. Somehow I'm going to miss it again. And because that's hard to take, and because you know in your gut, especially if you are a Christ follower, that it ought to be different, you're going to go for the hard reset rather than the one that will restore health and truth and joy to the season because, gang, this ought to be the happiest time of the year. And how many of you knew, I don't know if you knew or not, and I don't say this to depress you, but how many of you knew that for a lot of people, Christmas is the most depressing time of the year? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that. Did you know that? That seems out of place. That just seems wrong. But I hear that. And it is true. I know that it needs to be reset. I know we're off track. So here's some of the tabs. I'll just throw a few out there. and They apply. They apply. We've got office party tabs, gift buying tabs open, ugly Christmas sweater tabs, holiday party dress tabs, the politically correct language of Xmas tabs, small group tabs, church tabs, Santa tabs, kids tabs, relatives tabs, tabs for the office, tabs for school, tabs for neighbors, white elephant gift tabs, caroling tabs, nutcracker tabs, Christmas play tabs, Polar Express tabs, vacation tabs, Rudolph tabs, Charlie Brown tabs, Grinch tabs, oh, all the noise, 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 noise. We got, see all these tabs we have? That's not even a fraction of them. 
Where's Jesus in that? Where's Jesus in all the tabs? And every year we add more tabs. Most people enter this season with a pretty well-functioning heart drive, and that's not a mistake. I meant not hard drive, heart drive. By the time we get here, you know, it's functioning okay, and we've got this idea like we're going to make it different this year. And we have a little bit of hope that we can find joy and goodwill and all of that. But in the 11th hour, like I said, around December 24th, most realize it's just going to be a hard reset again. may even be worse than it was last year, worse than it was the year before. And this happens because even our hopes, gang, as I study the Word, and I was, I was thrilled this week. I hope you are too with what I found. Because even our hopes um, are grounded in the wrong things. We have extremely unrealistic expectations this time of year. And gang, what happens is as soon as they collide, and they will, as soon as they collide with real life, as soon as those hopes and expectations, and some of them are just out to lunch, collide with the reality of what really happens every year this time of year, it's devastating for some people. It's devastating. Everything locks up in our spirit. Look up here. What if I told you and I'm not, I sound like a salesman when I say that, but what if I told you there's a different way? I'm in an absolutely clear way, and this is exciting, an easy way to find the joy in Christmas, uh, to, to, to reset your heart drive, to, to defrag your life. Remember that thing on the computer? I don't even know if they have that anymore, to defrag, defrag your, your, your life, clear off all the clutter on your desktop, change all the factory settings back to the original manufacturer specifications like Garden of Eden manufacturer specifications straight from Creator God uh, right out of the box, right out of the womb actually to you. That sounds overblown and crazy. But just say, I'm, I'm right, and, and just trust me for a moment. Would you be interested in that? Anybody interested in that? And I would think that, that parents especially, if you're honest, would go, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in that. Because I see my kids, they're, they're kind of doing the same thing I do. And we just get in this cycle and, yeah, I want to know if Christmas has something more. Well, sure, it's got something more. Look at the word. Why do you think Satan wants to trash that word so bad? Why do you think he wants to put a big fat X? Xmas. That's funny because even that was done by early Christians for a good reason, but it's been changed into a bad reason. Why do you think he wants to change Christmas to the holiday season? Why do schools want to call it winter break? So we want to take the focus off. You know, we want to say, well, everybody has a different thing. This holiday season, we'll all have fun and we'll find joy. No, you won't. You won't find it because Jesus is the reason for the season, period. Without Jesus, there's no reason for Christmas. There's no reason to take a winter break. Stay in school, students, and just keep on studying. Now I've got your attention. You don't want to do that. And what if I told you that instead of 85 tabs to pull this off, gang, we're only going to need four? Well, that, that's hard for me because I like a lot of tabs. But for some of you, you're going, that's a four? That's it? Even for you? Yeah. If you're interested in writing them down, here they are. You ready? Because you don't seem ready. Good. <laughs> Leslie's ready, and that's it. Number one, hope. Number two, love. Number three, joy. Number four, peace. Hope, love, joy, peace. Anybody recognize that? That's Advent. It's Advent. Ever heard of Advent? I might have been in ministry about 23 years. I have never at this season, in this time of the year, preached on Advent. 
This year's different. Our Christmas series that we're in right now called Christmas Reset is really Advent. And so I'm going to do everything in my power and through the power, more importantly, of the Holy Spirit to refocus us and center us on Jesus Christ. And you'll find that joy. And you'll find that contentment. That's the, and the good news. You don't even have to give up Santa to do it. You can keep all of that stuff. So the first one is hope. You ever think about this game? Without hope, we'd be lost. Hope is as much a sustaining force, whether you believe it or not, as food and water and the air that we breathe. In fact, spiritually speaking, hope is more important. Without hope, we die. We perish. We languish. You know, in World War II, in prison camps, uh, they figured out one of the worst tortures they could do to the prisoners. And it's not even going to sound like a big torture to you, but here it is. They would take the prisoners and they would have them uh, take a gigantic pile of, you know, make this gigantic pile of rocks and dirt and everything, just dig out a pit and have this. And then they would take that, once they dug it out, and they'd fill it back in. And then when they were done, they were commanded to take and dig the pit again. And for a creative change in that, they had piles of rocks that the prisoners had, you know, dug out of a pit, and they would have them put it in wheelbarrows or just carry these huge rocks about a mile or all the way to the other end, however long that is, of the prison camp, and make another pile. And when they're done, they would have them take that pile and move that pile back to the original site of the original pile. And you know what that was? Purposeless. There's no meaning. There's no reason to do that. And so the prisoners began to lose hope, and that was the, that was the purpose. That was the goal, because they knew if they could demoralize them and have them lose hope, they would literally die without even having to do anything to them. It's worse than torture. Hope is a powerful thing. Keeps us focused. Keeps us trusting. Keeps us loving and seeking that which matters to us. Take a look. question for you. Why did that girl even bother looking for a dog? Well, that's pretty easy, right? She loves her dog. She loves her dog, and her dog is missing. Love, I'm going to say this slow because you've got to get it. It's not hard, but you've got to get it. Love caused her to seek. Hope kept her from giving up. Love caused her to seek. Hope kept her from giving up. 
As soon as you see the story, gang, of Jesus Christ woven throughout all of Scripture, you're going to see how much God loves you, cares about you. Even though we sinned and turned our back on Him, He loves us, and that caused Him to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why Jesus came. But, gang, hope keeps you from giving up. See, God is a patient God. He's not in a hurry, which is a problem for us, isn't it? It's a problem for an iPhone, you know, listen, a generation that anything we want is at our fingertips, isn't it? I remember when I was growing up, if, if, I, if I'm playing a song on the radio, uh, and it comes on, and I'm like, oh, who sang that? I love that song. Who is that? We just have to wait forever until I remember it, until somebody tells me or somebody else. Now what do you do? I'll tell you in five seconds who sings that song. Or, or who has Shazam? Shazam is an app. There's an app for that. You can just hold it to the radio, and it tells you instantly. And yet God is a patient God. God says you need to have faith and you need to have hope. Well, in a generation that gets things like that, that's a problem, isn't it? So it could be harder for us to find the meaning and the hope and the joy and the contentment of Christmas than any generation ever. But if you listen, if you have hope, I'll show you how to find it. Jeremiah 22, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That sounds easy. Sounds easy enough, except one problem. What happens if our hearts are too fragmented? If your heart's broken apart and, and it's misdirected and you've got a many gods on the throne of your heart, then you can't seek them with all of your heart. You can only give God a small piece of your heart. Hope is powerful, though. It can defrag your heart. So today we're going to look at where the greatest source of hope in all of God's Word is found, and it's actually found in all of God's Word. Here's how we'll do it. I love what I think John Piper, I think, is the one that came up with this. Anyway, someone said that we waste time, please listen carefully to this, it's beautiful, we waste time with shadows instead of getting to know the shadow caster. And that's really what happens at Christmas too. We waste time dancing around all the peripheral stuff, chasing shadows instead of Instead of getting to know the one who casts the shadow, Jesus is the shadow caster of all of Scripture, of all of Scripture. And the reason we come up empty Christmas after Christmas is that we get all excited about the shadows. What is that? Well, it can be anything. It can be the lights, the presents, the trees. All that's fun, but they're just shadows. They're just shadows. They're not the substance. Can't get your arms around a shadow. You ever tried? Can't do it. You can't get your heart around a shadow. A shadow is just a reflection. It's a reflection of something much bigger. The essence is Jesus. But the shadow of Christmas is a good thing and something to have fun with. It's not bad, and don't hear that in the, in the four weeks and as, we, as we unpack Advent. Don't hear them saying any of it's bad, but it's not enough. It's not enough. Ultimately, our hope is not in the, in the shadows, but rather in the substance that is casting that long and beautiful shadow. Now, where do I get that? That's actually in the Bible. Write this down. You'll need to look at it later and study the verses around it. That's actually in God's Word. Paul wrote to the, uh, to the people of the church of Colossians, the, to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, these, the things he just talked about, all these trappings, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There it is. Where'd you get that, Patrick? That's where I got it. All the peripheral, all the things that, that Jesus does, those are a shadow. Jesus is who it's all about. It's a simple saying, but it's true. Jesus is the reason for the season. Advent King is all about the anticipation. 
Advent really means waiting. The awaiting. The awaiting of what? The awaiting of the arrival of the Savior. All of the Old Testament, once there was sin, was about Operation Rescue, Operation Hope, awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. And now Advent for us should be a little bit different. We should reflect on this at Christmas time, but there's something else now that we're waiting for as Christ followers the second coming of Jesus Christ. That should give you hope and joy and peace. And the problem is, if you're chasing after everything else, how many Christians you know, and I don't want to see hands on this one, just think about your own heart. Don't even think about the second coming. Don't even spend time with it. Don't even care. Are too busy. They're just going, well, I'm saved. I'm covered. i got other things to do. Well, then do you wonder why you have no joy? Do you wonder why you're not content? The Old Testament is full of shadows that point to the coming of the shadow caster. They gave the Old Testament hope, the Old Testament saints hope in something better and greater. So we're starting our first week of Advent, which is far more involved. This is going to be a heavy task than just a Christmas message. It's trying to get your mind and heart on the substance and not just the shadow. And I know full well that simply 30-minute messages are not going to do the trick. That's why for you, I've decided to up my messages to at least 45. That's just my little gift for you because I know what we're... <laughs> Some of you are going, wow, I've never been in one that short for you, Pastor Rob. Well, I have a timer here, and I don't know why because I never ever pay attention to it. Uh, I did it for you because Christmas lights are already up. Frosty's already teamed up with Rudolph to wear you down, parents. And Christmas songs have been playing at least on 91.9 since the 4th of July. Anybody knows that? I mean, it's just, so I'm all, I, I get it, gang, I'm already too late. In a sense, I'm already too late. Everyone here is already getting browbeaten with unrealistic expectations of what this season is. I guess what? This year, give her the gift that tells her more than anything else how much she means to you. Give her the Lexus GS 450H. And if she's really the girl of your dreams, make it a hybrid. <laughs> I'm looking at that, and I, I love, here's the girl of my dreams right here. Here's Michelle, my wife, who is absolutely probably more the rock in, in our family than anything else. And her, her car has 200,000 miles on it, you know? And so I'm think, I was thinking more like a, a new pair of oven mitts. And so what does that mean? Does that mean that I'll, I mean, there's just unrealistic. I see commercials. Maybe I'm weak. Maybe I'll go, Pastor, we, we want more from you. But I look at these commercials, and I think, her car's old and has a lot of, she needs that. She deserves that. And what kind of husband am I to let her drive that around? It just broke down for the umpteenth million time last week. And, and so it's unreal. And so I start thinking, well, to really show love, I, I need to do something like that. But that's just one in a million of the unrealistic expectations that gets us off track. So you're not getting a car, <laughs> is my point. <laughs> but these, these advertisements and expectations can make us feel like a failure. At Christmas time. Like I said, we're up against a lot of distractions, a lot of open tabs this time of year. So I'm going to give a couple ways throughout this four-week series leading up to the greatest day, my favorite day of the year, Christmas Eve. And you can continue the resetting of Christmas at home. Here's the first one. For example, parents, raise your hands. Let me see you. All right, here's what I want you to do when you leave here. So I want you to start. If you take your iPad or iPhone, in fact, just do it right now. I know you have them. I see you reading them and playing on them. So hold them up. Hold your phones and your iPads up. Go ahead. Hold them up. I see five. Liars, keep going. Hold them up. Hold them up. Some of you, you're not moving. Take it out of your purse or back pocket. All right. 
it, the more are appearing every second. It's like, so here's what I want you to do. There's a place you can go, log it in right now, called uversion.com. Uversion.com. Some of you already find it. It is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Pastor Craig Rochelle, Shell and Life Church came up with this. You can go to uversion.com and they've got reading plans for every subject there is. They've got a million of them for Christmas. They got some for Advent. And you go to Uversion and you go to the tab for the reading plans. And the one the Singleton family is doing is called Rediscovering the Christmas Season. Rediscovering the Christmas Season. I'd love for us to do this as a church so we can move toward the shadow caster as an entire body, as an entire body. Because, gang, I, I wasn't kidding when I said before. I was kidding about the 30-minute sermon, but if I had 45, an hour, two hours, three hours, I, I can't compete, gang. I can't. I can't compete with all the stuff that's out there, all the shadows and the tabs opening up. I can't. So you're going to have to take everything that you learn here, and you're going to have to keep on going and keep on working if you want your family especially to get it. One warning and this is for the rest of our series here. We live in a microwave culture. We really don't have to wait for much of anything. Like I said, you want something, you just Google it. So this is our one rule for the entire next four weeks. And I hope you get started. Look up here. I want you all to take a deep breath. I just hold it. No, let it out. Not a sound. Just listen and watch. Can we do that? You can let your breath out now. Okay, turn in your Bibles. When I said this was in the whole Bible, this, this thread, I meant it. Turn to Genesis 1. And I want to point out a few verses for you, and you tell me if you see a recurring theme, okay? You guys are sharp. I think you can do this. Genesis 1, 3 through 4. And God said, let there be light. And the Lord saw that the light was good. Now move on to Genesis 1. 10. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. Are you getting it? I mean, you guys are sharp, but just in case, I'm going to give you another one. Genesis 1.31, and the Lord saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. That's right. There's nothing bad. It's all good. And man, the last creation created in God's own image causes God to shift from just saying good to saying very good, very good. In a scenario, gang, where all is good, obviously nothing bad exists, no sin, no death, but something else was not necessary. Something else didn't exist, and, and people don't pick up on this, and I want you to get this. In a scenario like that where everything's good, get us, guess what else is just not there? Adam and Eve would never have heard of it. It would have been foreign. What, Pastor Rob? you got to give it to me. We're talking about it today. Hope. Think about it. They, they didn't know what hope was. They don't need hope. There's no, it's not necessary. It's only necessary when things turn bad, right? Because all hope is for something better than what is current. 
right? Some of you are going, oh, I'm not so sure. That sounds, that sounds a little weird. All right, let me get, other words, why would you hope for it? No one who's doing well, who's, who's joyful and healthy, hopes for sickness, betrayal, and pain in their life, right? When everything's going great, you don't hope that it'll get worse. You only hope that it would get better. In fact, that's hoping for things that are worse is not hope. It's the opposite. It's fear. When, you, when things are going great and you think, I don't want it to go bad. I don't want things to go bad. I don't want it to go back the way it was in a bad time in my life. That's, that's fear. That's anxiety. It's the opposite of hope. All the bad things in life create the need for hope. Fear makes us long for and hope for security and safety, right? Pain makes us hope for healing. And you get this. Loss makes us hope for restoration. Betrayal makes us hope for justice. You see how all these bad things produce hope? Now, the only reason you wouldn't have hope is if you saw no way that something good could ever come from the bad, right? Then all hope is lost. Or if, like I was saying with the prisoners in the prison camp of World War II, if you thought your life was meaningless and there was no reason or purpose, you'd lose hope and then there's no way you can have any joy. Let's watch this. After the fall, after Adam and Eve chose to sin, there was an immediate, violent, and painful infusion of all that is wicked and agonizing and bad. And when I say immediate, it didn't exist before. All of a sudden, they sin, and all of a sudden, there's this heavy burden on them and a knowledge that everything just changed. I can, I can picture Adam turning to Eve going, what, what is that? And Eve looking at Adam in fear and going, I don't know, but everything that was good is gone. I have this weight. I, don't want, I want it to go back. God, what is it? What did they do right away when they sinned with the God they were walking with in the garden and talking with in the garden? What did they do? They hid from Him. He's your friend. He loves you. Now you're scared of Him? Evil's entered. Sin's entered. Death has entered. And at this point, gang, we'll come back to it. They don't have hope. All they know is that everything has disappeared that was good, and they're living in this, this momentary time of complete paralyzation of fear. So, put that on hold. I want you to know this, gang. All of Scripture, all of it, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, is about awaiting the one who can fulfill and restore and heal. All of Scripture is about awaiting the shadow caster. All of it. Some, some people think the Old Testament's like a different Bible. It's not. It's not. It's all about looking forward to the Messiah. And there's so many breadcrumbs that show when He's going to come, how He's going to come, who He's going to be, what He's going to do. But what happens if we grow impatient? for the coming of the Messiah, for that which we hope for, and settle for shadows over the shadow caster. And you need to get this. It's like taking drugs. I mean, somebody convinces you, and you're dumb enough to listen, hey, man, if you're not doing good, just take drugs. And you take them, you know, it's probably going to feel good for a little while, but what happens right after that? You're going to need it again. And probably you're going to have to up the ante a little bit, Right? And maybe take more. And then it feels good for a while. This is why people become alcoholics, because they'll numb the pain with alcohol, and it feels good for a little while, but then they got to do it more. It's empty. It doesn't last. The need will become even greater. So right after the fall, Advent really began right there. All of creation began longing for the shadow caster to come and make things right. How can I prove this? Turn in your Bibles, flip way forward to the New Testament, the book of Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, chapter 8. Time's up. I'll start reading it for you. 18 through 25. You keep getting there. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this is Paul talking to the, to the Christians in Rome, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us believers. For the creation waits with eager longing. What's that? Let's play Jeopardy real quick. Waits with eager longing. Ding, ding. What is hope? Isn't that what that is? If you wait with eager longing, well, well, that's hope. Keep listening. For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. That's hope again. For adoption as sons, and I'll add to that daughters, the redemption of our bodies. That's what will happen in the second coming. For in this hope, there it is again, we were saved. Now hope, again, that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That might have only been a few verses, but I see a theme. I see a theme in there. I see a key word. And the key word in the theme is hope. It's just a few verses, but the word hope, either directly or indirectly, is used eight times in just a couple of verses there. God is telling us that He's promising to make everything good again. The God who cannot lie promises, I will make everything good again. But I'm not in a hurry. Now, by the way, why isn't He in a hurry? And you ought to be thankful and glad that He's not. Because God is patient. And loving, says this in First Peter, I believe, not willing that any should perish. God wants you to come to know Him. God wants you to be reconciled to Him. He's not in a hurry. And gang, if you found out that that, that family member that you love who's lost would come to Jesus next year, would you be willing to wait another year for the Lord's return? If you found out that your son or daughter is growing up and they're rebelling or whatever, but if you found out he had a crystal ball and said, in two years they're going to bend the knee to Jesus Christ, would you be willing to wait another two years? God's not impatient. And we need to be glad that he waits. He promises he'll make it all right. We just need to trust him and be patient. Now, last verse or so one more time. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let me put it another way. Hope that is placed in mere shadows is weak. Weak. Hope has to be pointed in the right direction at the true source and then waited for patiently to have its power. Otherwise, it's not hope. That's what he just said. And, you know, it, it, just this morning I was going through this again one last time, and it dawned on me that there's another word for that recipe, that whole hope recipe. It's called faith. That's turbocharged hope, isn't it? Faith. And we read in Hebrews 11 that it's impossible to please God without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not if you have a little, you know, if you don't have faith, you can do a lot of works and he might, you know, feel good. No, it, you can't even get started. If you don't trust and believe, you can't even get started. That's the starting place to pleasing God. Again, I'll tell you how the church hurts this. The church today seems to believe that the way to mature believer, in fact, most discipleship programs, I'm going to walk among you because some of you are just, wow, that's like drinking from a fire hose. Most churches teach, I've seen this, we've, I've done this in, in, in my past, that the way to become more like Christ and the way to mature is to learn more facts from the Bible, right? 
just to learn more stuff about God. You know, teach classes, accumulate knowledge. That's how you become more like, that's not it at all. Here's what, the longer I live and the more I'm in ministry, here's what I'm finding out. You know what it is? Do you know what will make you more like Christ? You know how you'll find joy? Stretching and growing your faith. That may be the, the whole purpose. That might be everything. To grow your faith and your trust and your reliance on your Father to where you love Him and cling to Him more will make you more like Jesus Christ. More than learning facts, more than going to church, more than than earning brownie points by doing good deeds, just learning to trust Him. All of life is about learning to trust Him more. Now, a lot of times I'll hear Christians say, I wish you could have lived in Old Testament times, all those cool miracles and dramatic events. I've said that before. You got the parting of the Red Sea. How cool would that have been? I remember when special effects were just hitting TV. How many of you seen that old Charlton Heston movie in the Ten Commandments? That's actually jello that they, you know, kind of blew a fan on. But it looked pretty cool, didn't it? It's kind of cheesy now with special effects. Uh, but that's how they did But to be back there when there's 2.1, 2.2 million Jews crossing the Red Sea and 50, 60, 70 feet high is the water on the sides. And you're walking through it. You're a little nervous because you think it, you know, could come down at any time. And it did on the other group, on the Egyptians. So you, I, I'll hear people say, man, if I could have seen that, my faith would be strong. Or Elijah, I, I read that he took on 800 prophets and then called fire down from heaven to slay them. And Daniel and the lions then, when the lions were hungry, they did nothing to him. And David killing a giant, little David, when he was probably 15 or 16 years old, and a family riding out what they thought was the end of the world in a large wooden vessel. It took them 100 years to build. And a burning bush that talks, that's kind of cool. And how about the guy that was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights, a big, great big fish? Look at all that. Man, I, live, I wish I lived back then. Look up here. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because back then, if you're disobedient to your parents, if you even talk back to them, they'd stone you to death. I'm thinking that would whittle this crowd down to about three. And somebody else would have to preach because that's, that's me too. It just, there are things back then that are much harder. And these miracles didn't happen every day. They were few and far between. And there were other things you could get. If you stole, they'd cut your hand off. If you slandered, that's not so, we, we worship gossip today. We don't even think it's a sin. Or committed adultery, death penalty. So again, I'm thinking very few of us would have even made it. So we're actually more privileged to live today with the Holy Spirit of God, able to live in your heart. So what were those things for? They're shadows. All those miracles. If you really look closely at them, they all have one purpose. You know what it is? Oh, what is it? What are, to point to Jesus Christ. Every single miracle. I don't, I don't get it. I look at some. They don't seem to have anything to do with it. But over the weeks ahead, you'll see they all do. They all do. The God of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. The entire Old Testament is like a giant compass pointing straight to Jesus give you a few things. The entire sacrificial system set up in the Old Testament, one great final sacrifice is what it pointed to, Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why they did it over and over, daily, monthly, all these different sacrifices, because one day that would all end when the Lamb of God, called the Lamb of God, and it's Lamb who was sinless and perfect, would end the need to keep doing this. 
the freedom from 400 years of bondage in Egypt to be set free to go to the promised land points to the freedom ultimately of a greater bondage, sin, that Jesus would set us free from. The near sacrifice of Isaac on the altar pointed to the real sacrifice of Jesus. The blood on the doorpost for the angel of death, the tenth plague in Egypt, the blood on the doorpost of the homes represented the cross. The sparing of their firstborn son points to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. I know this is heavy, but I can keep going on. Here, here's a couple more. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, Jesus said this himself, the Son of Man, before he went and died, he said, I will be in the belly of the grave. I'll be in the earth. I'll be in the grave for three days, three nights. Really, the whole Jonah thing? I thought that was to get him to Nineveh and to talk to them and get up. No, it was to be a precursor, a, a, a compass pointing. All of it is. This should get you excited. But not only did they have these prophetic pointers, like I just said. You also had a, a breadcrumb trail into the future that started way back in Genesis, right after the fall, Operation Hoping In. Now, remember I told you that I would get back to the hope that was given to the first man and woman. They're sort of in this, this burdened limbo land. Well, Genesis 3, go back to Genesis now. There's going to be one giant sword drill here. Genesis 3.14 says, The man said to the woman who... You, uh, this man said to God, this woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So the blame game, that's a whole other sermon. We're not even going to go into that. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. So they just keep shifting the blame. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Here it is right here. Here's the hope. Way back in Genesis 3. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I don't get it. That's the first prophecy in all of Scripture, right at the very beginning. He, an offspring, Jesus, shall bruise your head, Satan, and that'll be a death blow. And you shall bruise his heel, which will just be a mere annoyance when you really look at it. That's all you can do. Now, with hindsight, gang, we know this speaks of Jesus, but Adam and Eve would not have known that. Even the Old Testament saints would not have known. But the breadcrumbs of Advent and the hope will get more and more frequent and more and more clear as you go through Scripture. Now, same book, chapter 12, Genesis 12. We've got to pick up speed here, gang. You're going to have to get quicker turning your Bibles. He calls an ordinary sinful man named Abram, who will soon be called Abraham, and God makes all these outrageous promises to this ordinary man. He said, you'll have a son in your old age. You'll start a new people group. That's kind of cool. You'll have a promised land to call home. There will be tremendous blessing for you. Look at verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all of the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. So listen, when it comes to the destruction of sin and death and all that went wrong in the fall, all we know that is a man is, all we know now so far in what I've told you that a man is coming, born of a woman. Doesn't really narrow it down much, right? Let's see, who could that be? That could be anyone. But now he throws down larger breadcrumbs, and a whole lot more uh, of them in Genesis 12. And now we know that he's going to be through the line of Abraham, so we now know that this coming Messiah, we don't even know it's a Messiah, but now we know he's going to be a Jew. So it's getting more and more clear. Now quickly, keep going to Genesis 17, starting in verse 6. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give you to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I'll be their God. It's another breadcrumb on the trail leading to Jesus. It says here, he will also be a king. 
there'll also be a king. But listen, God's not in a hurry. The entire 400 years of slavery and bondage in, in Egypt, and you all know the story, and Moses leading them out still has to happen. hasn't happened yet. And then a couple hundred more years of living under the rule of judges, which you can read about appropriately enough in the book of Judges. So it's like six, seven hundred years still has to happen before any of this happens, takes place. So the people had to not only have hope, but they had to have patience. The next breadcrumbs are dropped in Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, long about verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from you, tribe of Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So a Messiah is going to be coming, who's going to crush sin and death, and he'll be wounded, and he'll be from the Abra Abrahamic line. He'll be a Jew. And now we even know the tribe. It's going to be from the tribe of Judah, and he's going to be a king. Now, at the very least, gang, let me tell you who this is about. At the very least, this is about David. This is pointing to King David. They knew it, but most Christians today, it's the most biblically illiterate group that's ever lived on the face of the earth. It's amazing. We've got so many things at our fingertips, and most people don't know their Bible at all. In fact, I guarantee some of you are sitting there right now going, I didn't have any idea. I never knew any of this. I knew Jesus came as a baby, and he was born of a virgin. That's about it. I didn't know this whole program was instituted and started right after the fall. I didn't know the whole Old Testament is about this. Look at this stuff being unpacked. And this is said even about, you know, pointing to King David. I mean, listen, King David is not going to beam down and enter the, the situation that this is being for another thousand years from when this is written. And so right here is where a lot of people lose hope. Because they look around, they see death and disease, and here's what happens. Here's what happens at Christmas time. Here's what just happened. They see natural disaster. They see Hurricane Sandy, right? And they see, they see the tension in the Middle East, and they see Ahmadinejad, and the guy's a nut, and they see, does, he have, does Iran have the bomb? Does it not have the bomb? And they look at all this stuff, and they go, by the way, where's God? Where is God in all this? It just like everything looks like it's spinning out of control. It doesn't look like God's in control, and they become impatient. And they come to the impatient conclusion that God is not really in control and doesn't really care. Maybe he got all this going and then he just took off. So they lose sight of the, the path. They lose sight of the breadcrumbs. And place their trust instead in all the scary stuff and all the tabs open in their life instead of God. But God has promised, I will crush his head. I'll end this. We may see little battles along the way that look like we're losing, but the war, the conclusion of the war is already written. This is a losing battle for Satan. The problem is, like I said last week, if you were with us, that, that he just keeps kicking the ball, the, the foot wedge, just keeps kicking it down the fairway. God just keeps pushing these events down because he's a patient God. And the longer it takes, the more we go, maybe it's not going to happen. Maybe I read the Bible wrong. Maybe I have to make excuses for God. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. I'm only going to give you a couple more and we'll close out. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Moses talking. From your brothers. To him shall you shall listen. Just as you desired for the Lord your God at Herob on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded and whoever shall not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. Now, we know that the Messiah will be at least as mighty in his words as a prophet like Moses. At the very least, we know from that this. 
So let's keep going. If you move to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, it starts getting really specific now. Verses 14 and 15. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. How much more specific can you get than that? Here it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Anybody know what that means? We sing these songs at Christmas. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. That sounds so beautiful and gothic. What does it mean? God with us. That's fairly major, isn't it? It's amazing how many songs we sing in the ancient songs. I love that song. That song's beautiful. What does it mean? God present. God with us. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. And we read that and we go, what does that mean? I'll be born of a virgin. He'll be God. The sign I'm going to give you is I'll be with you through the miracle of the incarnation. And here's what the other part means. Emmanuel will eat butter and honey, common foods in that society. That just speaks of his humanity. He's going to be God, but he's also going to be human. Now, he couldn't have understood it then, but here it is. He's the God-man. He's going to eat just like you and me. He's going to be a man. Why is that important? Because Hebrews 4.15 says, we have a sympathetic high priest who was tempted in all the ways that we are, yet without sin. That means when we cry out to God and we go, I'm struggling here, God, help me. We don't serve a God who goes, I'd like to, but I have no idea what you're talking about. I'd like to, but I can't relate. Remember, I'm perfect and you're not. So, stinks to be you. No, that's not. We have a God who says, I actually, I know how that feels. God, I'm crying out. I've been betrayed. Can Jesus relate to that? Yeah, he's been betrayed. God, everybody left me. I'm so lonely. Do you know how that feels? Can you help me? Yeah, he knows how that feels. All his disciples ran from him. He was alone. In fact, there's no emotion, there's no pain that you feel that he hasn't felt ten times greater. The difference is he knows how to get out of it because he never sinned like we do. So we have a, a king who can empathize with us. So we don't have a God who says, what's your problem? We have a God who says, I know that struggle. Now, skip ahead a couple of chapters to Isaiah 9, 6, and says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's pretty cool because Mighty God means he's not just man. He's God. Micah 5.2. I'll just read it for you. Don't go there. But you, O Bethlehem who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from days of old, from the ancient days. You know what that means? Literally, forever and ever. That's another God reference. Isaiah 52, 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and from his, beyond that is children of mankind. You can't even recognize him. Something happens to him where he's beaten so badly. Look at all these breadcrumbs. So we've moved from his birth to his reason for coming to earth to give his life for our sins. Then back to his physical appearance and the hard path he'll have to make. And it says he grew up from among us like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is Isaiah 53, 2 through 3. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. In other words, he wasn't handsome. Why? On purpose. Because God said, I don't want people to follow him like, like people follow a movie star or something. I want him to follow his words. We have a, we have a tendency to do that, don't we? We have a habit and a tendency to elevate pretty people or handsome people, even if they're shallow and empty. Don't we do that as a culture? God wanted to say, I don't want that to happen at all, not even a moment. He's just average looking. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, he's not a head turner. You wouldn't even look at him twice. Follow the breadcrumb. So a Messiah is coming who's going to crush sin and death and be wounded. He'll be in the Abrahamic line. He'll be a Jew. He'll be from the tribe of Judah. He'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And should we doubt what that means? Isaiah 9, 6 says he'll be the mighty God. 
He'll also come from a long line of kings, beginning with King David. He will be born in the same city as David in Bethlehem. He will be so beaten and abused that even those who know him best couldn't even recognize him, passing him by. We can go on and on and on. There's so much more. Okay, but we don't have time. Not even close. I've already blown that out. But hopefully, hopefully you heard enough to know that, I love the way Andy Stanley puts it, to know that the entire Old Testament is the story of God saying, please get this, is the story of God saying, trust me. Just trust me. It's no coincidence, gang, that God didn't give Israel the law until they first learned to trust Him and follow Him. I mean, they waited all these years, and when they finally learned and were broken down and said, I'll just cling to you, He goes, okay, here's the boundaries, here's the law. Now watch this. Knowing all this that we've talked about this morning, it shouldn't be a shock that the core of Jesus' message is one word. All throughout the New Testament, you've got this one word that occurs over and over and over again. If you want to know Jesus, one thing, believe. Believe. Just as our relationship with God from the time of Adam and Eve was shattered through a lack of faith and trust that he really had our best. Wasn't that how it was shattered? God said, I love you, here's paradise. Satan said he's holding out on you, and we said, I don't trust him. Maybe he is, and it was shattered because of lack of trust and faith, right? Isn't it fitting that it would be restored by an act of faith? That's beautiful. Believe. Believe. That's Advent. That's the power of Christmas. Let's pray. God, this is beautiful, beautiful this time of year, Lord. And God, I'm not responsible for every church or every believer, but I'm responsible for those gathered here. And Lord, my prayer, my desperate prayer for us is to not just keep living years and years of our life and never connecting you, especially, God, this time of year called Christmas. Lord, I know sitting here are those that have never found the joy and the peace of Christmas because they've never really found you, or maybe they don't trust you, or maybe there's pain in their life, and because they're not patient and seeing the end road in you and the, and, and the finish and your glory, they don't know joy because they don't have hope. God, may this be the start of Operation Hope for us as believers. May we change what Christmas means to this body of believers. May it make us powerful. May it make us impactful for the building up of your kingdom. I pray all these things, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. See you next week.